this episode mentions suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, the number is 1-800-273-TALK. Greetings, mournful mutts. I hope you're ready to prostrate naked for this episode. I'm Rob Pasercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. And I am so fucking excited for this episode. These movies are so brutal. And uh, they make you kind of cry a little bit when you watch these. Uh, (laughs) I thought you were going to say you were so tired, which also makes me want to cry a lot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm fucking tired. Daylight savings is a sin, and we should just get rid of that shit. Um, before we get going on our uh, private lives and all those activities, please follow us on our social media accounts at Cadaver Dogs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Our Twitter has been blowing up thanks to Devin Shepard. She's fucking awesome. And our Instagram is really freaking cool. Yeah, check out, oh my God, the Monster Mondays and the Transformation Tuesdays are freaking creepy. Thanks to Rob. Yeah, yeah. I still haven't figured out the Instagram code because uh, sometimes I post a gift that's stupid and it gets like 4,000 views. And other times I post something that's cool and it gets like 20. So yeah, Instagram, make up your fucking mind. (laughs) Instagram sucks anyway. So I've been going through a move and it's, you know, it's a fucking nightmare looking for apartments. You always think you're getting ripped off no matter where you go. And right now, I might be living above a something. It's a big, giant question mark, whatever business they're going to put downstairs. Oh, like one of those uh, rotating restaurants. Uh, I hope not. I hope it's just a convenience store. But I don't know. Maybe it'll be like a barbershop that's crazy. You mean where you're living now or where you're moving to? Where I'm moving to, yeah. You found a place? I think so. We applied to it, yeah. It's right down the road. I didn't know that. Sweet. Congrats. Yeah, hopefully by the time this uh, episode airs, our next recording, I'll be in some like soundproofed closet or something because lo and behold, (laughs) I actually have a fucking closet. I can put bodies in there. Right now, they're under the floorboards. They don't fit in the closet. (laughs) That's always the thing about moving to a new apartment, like finding, I don't know, the stuff that people used to leave behind or I love when you look in other people's apartments and like you can see all their crap. (laughs) Yeah, we looked at one yesterday and they like left behind this giant like dresser and stuff. Ooh, hell yeah. Yeah, we got so much free shit. I remember when I was moving out of my old place, the realtor guy came to take pictures and it, it was just after our movie came out and I, the director gave me a giant poster and I placed it like right in the center of my living room. So it had to be in every single shot for the real estate <laughs> listing. I was like, this is this is my grassroots marketing. That's awesome. That's how you like promote your movie. So um, I'm sure everyone's so interested in our real estate ventures. But why don't we like get going? David B. Jacobs is going to explain our first film. After a long struggle with dementia, Annie's mother has passed. But Annie isn't really sad. Her mother was abusive and manipulative. They had a complicated relationship. Things change, however, when her children, teenager Peter and 13-year-old Charlie, a girl, go to a party where Charlie suffers an anaphylactic reaction to some cake. 
Guys, as someone who's allergic to peanuts, this is terrifying. Peter, who's high by the way, throws Charlie in a car and rushes her to the hospital. Charlie gasps for air, opens a window, sticks her head out just as Peter swerves to avoid some roadkill. And he may not have cried at her mother's funeral, but things are different at her daughter's. After Charlie was decapitated by a telephone pole, Peter simply drove home, leaving Annie to discover the body the following morning. He was in shock. As the family struggles to cope and fight among themselves, Annie comes to meet a woman named Joan, who also lost her son and grandson. Joan helps Annie in her grief, but also shows her something exciting, a seance with which she may summon the dead. Annie gathers Peter and her husband Steve to show them what she's learned, appearing to summon Charlie's spirit, which greatly upsets Peter. But of course, this is a horror movie, and maybe that isn't Charlie. You see, Grandma Ellen was part of a cult before she died, and worshipped the demon Paimon, for whom she'd bred her family as future hosts. Paimon desires a male body, but Grandma had only been able to place him in Charlie. Now the cultists are performing the ritual again, to move the demon into Peter. As Annie realizes what's happening and tries to stop it, her husband feels she's becoming severely ill and a danger to his son. Unfortunately, he bursts into flames. A few minutes later, a possessed Annie cuts off her own head with piano wire, and at last, the ritual is complete. Peter ascends into Charlie's old treehouse, where the cultists, Joan included, await. Hail Paymon. This is Hereditary, written and directed by Ari Aster, starring Tony Collette, Alex Wolf, Millie Shapiro, Gabriel Byrne, and Anne Dowd. Okay, I do I do have a lot of stuff to talk about, but you made me remember one thing, you being allergic to peanuts. So the first thing that we see <laughs> <laughs> the first thing we see of Charlie is her eating a Hershey's. And I know, David, that those are not safe to eat if you have a nut allergy, right? Yes, they are. Oh, damn it. I got I was like so happy and I proud of Hershey's. myself. I was like, that is incorrect. No, I love Hershey's. Damn it. <laughs> but the fact that they don't have an EpiPen on them is actually very weird. I mean, if it was just Charlie, like, yeah, okay, I go out without my EpiPen all the time. But if I'm with my mom, she has an EpiPen. And the fact that her, her mom didn't have an EpiPen is a little weird. I think yeah. it fits. It fits the characters. Yeah, I, I don't trust Annie at all in this movie. Kind of everything she does is suspect. So she's all scatterbrained. She's obviously been through a lot. I'm not surprised that she doesn't have an EpiPen on her. She kind of th seems like she's a little scatterbrained and her mother just died. So she's kind of losing it. I'm more surprised the father, Steve, doesn't have it. I think this goes in to a much larger conversation that we'll have later on that I'm curious your thoughts on. Yeah. It should also be noted, Charlie is not just allergic to peanuts. She's allergic to nuts. I think she's also allergic to tree nuts. Yeah. And she eats walnuts at the party. Oh, was it walnuts? I thought it was pecans. I think it was walnuts in the brownies. That's usually what goes in chocolate. Really not important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really not well, important. Also, well, it seems like it was planned because they're cutting like a fucking mountain of nuts for this chocolate cake. Why would you put that many nuts in this chocolate cake? There's just mountains of nuts. Yes. Because they're teenagers. Yeah. I don't think the teenagers did the cake. I think it was planned. It's definitely a weird scene. Again, I think it goes into a much larger conversation that we're going to have later on. But I did want to ask the question of the title. I think it's a good place to start. So what do you guys think is the meaning behind the title Hereditary? 
Right. So I think the obvious answer is that this curse or demon or whatever is being passed on through three different generations. You know, kind of like the mother's curse passed on to her children, passed on to their children. That's that's kind of the most obvious reason. I think there's probably more underlying themes that you guys might want to touch on. Wait, what is the mother's curse to you? Well, she, she's part of like a cult. So it's like the Paymon legacy is being passed on through generations. Mm. And it could be seen as like a possession being passed on through a legacy. I think some people even like argued that potentially the grandmother was possessed by Paymon. Oh, interesting. I always assumed that. We were reading some articles explaining it, and in those articles, they did not talk about the grandmother being possessed, but I always assumed that she had been. Danny talks about her having dissociative identity disorder. I just read that as she didn't actually have dissociative identity disorder. She was possessed by Paymon, and Paymon would come out, and that would appear to be DID. And also the fact that they have to cut off Ellen's head they're always cutting off people's heads when they're moving Paymon from one body to the next. So that implies to me that she was Paymon. So does that mean that Tony Collette's character, Annie, was possessed by Paymon at the end when she was flying around yeah. and shit? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. kind of neat. I would argue like even earlier on, right, because we get the whole backstory where she says, you know, my mom dressed me as a boy when I was growing up. Mm. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah, that is true. Oh, also, maybe when she invokes the spirit of Charlie, she's invoking Paymon into her own body. That's like when Charlie is speaking through her. Yeah, and that makes sense. Uh, You do see the exact moment when Paymon takes over her body uh, right after Steve bursts into flames. There is like that light thing just flashes across the screen and Colette's face changes. That is her getting possessed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of both. But I think, yeah, that that light thing is like the signal to even suggest when uh, Alex Wolf's character, uh, Peter, is possessed. Yeah. Right, because he also gets possessed. Yeah. But he's showing signs of possession before then. That's why it's kind of like that's like the full possession. I think there's kind of like a. Yeah. There's like mid possession and then there's like full possession. I, I think you might be right about that because possession rules are never explicitly explained, but they're kind of weird. Like we always assume that Charlie has been possessed at some point, but she never acts possessed. She never acts like Paymon. When Annie is possessed, she cuts off her own head. Charlie needs to be killed. What do you mean she doesn't act possessed? Because there's only one side of Charlie we ever see because. Yeah. Seemingly, exactly. she's possessed before the movie has started, and she acts bizarre as fuck. Like, she's a social outcast who, instead of hanging out with friends, would rather cut the heads off birds and make weird ritualistic toys. <laughs> cut the heads. Yeah. Yep. So there's this big, like, decapitation idea, you know, kind of like a head transplant type of symbolism of, like, switching bodies, the same brain on different bodies, maybe. Uh, Aster refuses to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But I, it's interesting that you say that Charlie needs to be killed. And I think this goes into kind of what we were talking about a little bit. The question of if Charlie is possessed and therefore decapitating herself comes into play here of like, is everything predetermined? Like we we're talking about with the walnuts or the pecans or whatever the fuck they are. It seems like that's on purpose. And then we were talking about the, the lack of the EpiPen questionably maybe on purpose that they forget to bring it. Like everything seems a little mm-hmm. too convenient. And this goes to something that I saw actually the first time in this watch is the pole that decapitates Charlie actually has the payment symbol on it. Hmm. Yeah, it seemed like everything was kind of predetermined and that all the characters are just kind of funneled into this. 
I've seen it described in one of the articles uh, you sent, I think Devin, was that this is from the viewpoint of the sacrificial lambs. It's not from the viewpoint of the people performing the ritual. That's why we're never really going to have a full answer to all these questions. Because it's like being seen from the person whose head is in the guillotine, not the executioner dropping the guillotine. Kind of, but I don't know if I agree with that fully. And I know Asser said that, but at the same time, what we're saying or what I was saying with the predetermined of Charlie's decapitation is that she is possibly mm-hmm. possessed and therefore decapitating herself with all, like she is aware of what's happening. And therefore she's not so much the sacrificial lamb because she is the demon at that point. She is payment mm-hmm. already. Well, Wait, you think I mean, that she killed herself? I'm confused. Unaware, maybe, yes. It, it is a crazy plan. So there has to be some sort of like supernatural angle to get her to stick her head out the window at that exact moment. You know, when the guy's driving past a pole. And come on, like she takes that big slice of cake with obviously you can see the nuts in it. She's not dumb. She maybe is she 13. Is. I absolutely, as someone who has allergies, I absolutely believe that that is possible. It, 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 it's easy to overlook things sometimes, especially when you're a kid. I think that if she hadn't stuck her head out at that exact time, then the cult probably had like three to five backup plans. There's a part later in the movie where as part of the ritual, Joan has to show Annie the seance and how to summon Paimon in the guise of Charlie. But uh, what would have happened if Annie hadn't called Joan, if she hadn't taken that bait? Well... There was also, we see an invitation to a seance that goes to their door, which Annie ignores. There were like multiple hooks being thrown at them so that they didn't need to take every hook. They only needed to take one. Right. That's interesting. And I mean, who's to say that Charlie would have even survived the attack, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. She probably wouldn't have uh, if they didn't make it to a hospital in time. And it seemed like they weren't going to. Yeah. Well, she needed to be decapitated. So they would have had to like cut her head off after she died which they did for the grandmother. Right. I mean, I don't know. All these are part of the ritual. Like even the like temporary possession that's happening. Like we're guessing that Tony Klett was possessed by Paymon, but we don't know. She could have been possessed by something else. I think it's likely that she was possessed by Paymon, but there's also the idea that they need to become the most vulnerable host. That's where that's seen in the writing text in the movie that Paymon needs to possess the most vulnerable one. And that's why kind of bringing up all this past trauma placed onto uh, Peter, especially when he thinks about how in the past his mother almost burned them alive, which is fucking nuts. That's necessary in order to break down his ego and his psyche and make him vulnerable to the influence of Paymon. Mm. That's really interesting. So the mother in that case was priming him to be possessed. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I, I think it was unbeknownst to her. Yeah, because I think she also... Uh, By the mother, you mean Ellen, right? No, I'm actually saying Annie. Annie was kind of prepping him, unbeknownst to herself. But I also wonder if Annie kind of accidentally over-prepped herself, and that's why she was the first possessed. That's interesting, because I read it the opposite. But what you're saying makes sense to me, but I read it as more of a... um, Annie is already possessed, and when she's sleepwalking... Or in that instance, when she's sleepwalking, that's when like herself comes through a little bit more because by killing them, she would be saving them from the demon and from the whole ritual. Not exactly. I 
don't think that killing yourself would end the ritual because I think at the end, Peter dies when he jumps out the window because one of Paimon's abilities is to raise the dead. Um, it's said that Annie's brother, who is also named Charles, uh, killed himself when his mother was trying to put people inside of him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, killing yourself before the ritual is complete does seem to stop it. All right. It has to be before it's complete, though. If it, you kill yourself after you're com- it's complete, then Paimon needs a new host. No, because he dies and Paimon resurrects him at the end. We don't know when he dies. We don't, but... He only fell two stories. He can easily survive that into yeah. grass. I just I don't think he died. It is in the text in the movie that one of his powers is to resurrect the dead. So it kind of seems like when he fell, he died, and then he gets resurrected. Maybe um, that's why you need to cut off the head. Maybe if you don't cut off the head, then Paimon doesn't leave the body. That mm. could be true also. And Ari Aster was just like, big fuck you, I'm not going to tell you, but I know. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I guess so. Wow. Tony Collette doesn't even know, but she has theories. I think it's a head transplant thing, like putting the same knowledge on different bodies, but that's just my thought. What's Tony Collette's theory? Her theory is more metaphorical. It's let me see if I can actually just find the quote real fast. So what Collette said was, we're so attached to our bodies. We're so attached to the brain and the mind. They're like the control center. And that once you lose that metaphorically, you become nothing. And therefore you are able to give yourself over to this greater force, Mm. which I like because it ties into this idea of losing your mind, which is what it appears like. When Annie is going through her whole family history of mental illness, there is actually no definitive evidence that anyone in her family has had suffered from mental illness. Right. Grandmother's DID could easily be explained by Paimon possessing her. Her brother Charles is schizophrenia. The only evidence she gives of that is that he believes his mother was trying to put people inside of him, which she was. That that's not a delusion. That was real. Mm. Annie's own descent into quote unquote madness. You see her behavior like you can kind of explain some of it, but it also does feel like there is a lot of justification for what's going on. She is not delusional in thinking that this ritual is going on. She is correct. It is real. Yeah, I never it's interesting because I never read that as like these people are actually suffering from those mental illnesses. I always read that as like those are excuses um, that the mom or that, you know, society explains to talk about their possession, um, which, you know, happens a lot in the in the real world, too. If you believe in being possessed, a lot of people call it, well, that's schizophrenia. That's, you know, seizures. That's, you know, they have all these medical terms for it. Yeah, I don't believe in possession at all. But yeah, in the movie, it's it's I think it's pretty obvious that it's real in the world of the film and these uh, uh, psychological diagnoses are false. Hey, Rob believes it really happened this time. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> well, there's no hint that it didn't really happen. That's not implemented in this one. There's no mm-hmm. question. Sorry, Daniel wasn't real. <laughs> <laughs> and it was clearly real. Um but it is worth noting that a lot of the origin for these myths and ideas of possession that we have come from a misunderstanding of mental illness in like centuries and millennia ago. Right. They, they, people didn't really understand the mind. And when people would act, quote unquote, crazy, instead of actually doing research into that, people would just justify by saying, oh, this person is possessed. Let's perform an exorcism. Right. Yeah. Mm. No. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> or like, oh, this woman's horny. She has hysteria. 
Yes, hysteria, yeah. which is basically the the disease of being a woman. <laughs> uh, yeah, it it is really interesting if we talk about like antiquity because o- often people with severe problems were uh, accused of being uh, supernaturally influenced, whether it be a witch or some sort of like demon possession. But that also gave rise to like the demon fighters or the wizards or shamans or seers or whatever that were able to remove the demons. So there's kind of like this uh, mixture of medical and religious uh, infusion with all kinds of medical practices. So science and uh, mysticism were, were interlinked in a way that they hopefully aren't too much nowadays, although we do still see inklings of this in like uh, hyper-religious people who don't believe in doctors or whatnot, or like my mm. wife's country where there are still shamans who put spiders on people's heads when they lose their souls. That's in the country of Bhutan, which is a pretty common practice there, I'm learning. Yikes. So speaking specifically of the deity Paimon, it's thought that he is the kind of reincarnation for the West of an ancient Mesopotamian deity who was a woman. And then they were changed into a male to kind of become king and then later changed into a demon. So it was like a demon king of hell. But this idea of like demons is always a negative force is kind of like a manifestation of like Judeo-Christianism. It wasn't necessarily the case in Greek antiquity. Demons could have been kind of just seen as a supernatural, not quite God type thing. In one of the uh, videos I was watching, they even claimed that Socrates in some texts said that he had a personal demon who would sometimes speak to him to tell him not to do things, but never to talk to him to do certain things. So what's kind of neat about the movie is the sex change of the deity itself, which is mirrored in wanting to have a male host. So Paimon literally changes from one body, which is female, into a male body. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it it talks a lot about, um, I mean, the history of payment itself, like you just explained, is really interesting. But what they do in the film of having to have the like female mind and the male body is interesting. And I think it talks a lot about this like, I think this was in the same article that we read. It talks a lot about the patriarchy in a sense of like the power essentially comes when you're a man and appearing male. Oh, yeah. But it also says women kind of maybe have a a better mindset, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. I mean, the main cultists of the movie are women. Uh, The grandmother and Joan are both women. And there was already main cultists that were introduced to. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about that because the movie seems to state that in the family unit, the women a lot of the time have the power. So as we see, the grandmother and the mother mm. have like basically full power over the situation. You know, Steve kind of pretends to have some sort of sway over things, but ultimately nothing he does has any kind of real consequence. Steve is so pure. <laughs> Even when he stands by like rigidly, he's like, I have to protect my son. He doesn't actually do anything. Well, that's because he dies. He doesn't do anything. He he doesn't accomplish anything. No, he was about to institutionalize her. If you don't believe in this stuff, like rightly, he should have her see a doctor. Actually, he should probably see her doctor. That's what he was about to do, but then he died. Even. Yeah, I know. But I am going to defend Steve. I think Steve is great. They don't give him anything <laughs> to do. He does nothing. I don't think any of the three of us have had the experience of uh, being married to someone who is slowly losing their mind, which is what he thinks is happening. Basically, a deep-rooted mental illness is surfacing itself after the death of their daughter. He is also dealing with the trauma from losing his daughter, and now he's losing his wife as well. I think we can cut him a lot of slack. 
and understand where he's coming from. And I don't, I, yeah. I, I think it's wrong to be this hard on him. No, no, no. I, I, I agree <laughs> with that. What I'm saying, you know, is like the movie, we, we never get his point of view. We never see anything that happens with him. He does like small little things, but he's barely like a part of this family. Mm. He just, he comes across as just very depressed to me. Oh, interesting. I didn't get that at all. I, I get the impression from the beginning before his daughter dies that he's very depressed and um, he has a lot of problems with his wife. And he probably has problems with Charlie, too, because Charlie's really fucking weird. So I don't know. Oh. I don't think he knows how to deal with that. She's I not I think weird. he also has problems with uh, expressing himself. There's a scene in the car when he's driving Peter home, which I noticed actually also mirrors when Peter is driving Charlie. They're sitting in the same seats. Peter is sitting in Charlie's seat and mm-hmm. Steve is sitting in Peter's seat. Uh, but Peter's asleep and... Uh, Steve just finally breaks down crying after nearly missing a red light. And you just see everything come out. I I think that he's very much feels like he has to be the man of the house. He feels like he has Mm. to be in control, but he has no idea what the fuck to do because there is no right answer in this scenario. Like, what the fuck do you do when your wife is? Yeah, no, this this actually does relate a lot to my life right now. (laughs) That, That is a really good scene because you can see how him almost messing up driving he can like instantly relate to his son, how easy it is for something insane like that to happen and how he feels like the kid shouldn't burden the blame. So I think that's him empathizing with his son in that scene. But I agree that he kind of has to be the strong character and that does fall on family members because no one else is taking up that mantle and no one else is capable of taking up the mantle at the time. Unfortunately, he's up against the king demon prince of hell. So he- he's kind of fucked. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not his fault. He's not doing anything wrong. Uh, Yeah. Okay. (laughs) What, Devin? Oh, so something just like clicked in my mind because I was going over my notes on Payman um, while we were talking about him, the demon. And so Payman is the demon of art. And one of my questions while watching this movie was like, what is the purpose of Annie being an artist and Charlie also showing art as well? And I think that shows more proof that they are possessed by payment mm. because they are artists. Mm. They're also very morbid artists, both of them. The the dollhouse's theme, I love the dollhouse's theme, and this is the watch where I, I think I understood what it is doing and why I like it. For me, you know, it's the first shot of the movie. You're moving in on the dollhouse, and it sort of sets up what a shot looks like when we're in a dollhouse, and then it keeps returning to that throughout the movie. So it makes it feel like they are all literally dolls in a dollhouse that someone is manipulating, someone is controlling, and that they have no control over their lives. Yeah. So there's a part in the movie, uh, toward the beginning, they're reading Heracles in English class, which we won't get into too much, save for the fact that there is a giant chalkboard reading themes in the first 10 minutes of the movie. So, you know, I'm going to pause and write it all down. It feels like When I see that giant chalkboard, I just feel like the director is winking at us. Uh, So the first of those themes is escaping fate. And the teacher explains that Heracles, and by extension, the Graham family, uh, never had a choice. So let's answer his question. Does that make it more tragic or less tragic? Uh, That that makes it more tragic when you kind of know what's going to happen in the beginning. Old tragedies in ancient Greece, often you were told the ending of the story before it started. So that happened with um, like uh, 
Oedipus, for instance, you know, one of the most famous tragedies of all time. We know that he's going to sleep with his mother and kill his father. And then we watch him do mm. it, which makes it more tragic because you know what's going to happen. Mm. I, I would argue this movie, the first time viewing, you probably don't know what's going to happen. But their fate is inevitable. And we see this because they're all the pawns of this cult ritual. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. shown in the dollhouse. They're all dolls. Devin? Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. I think it is more tragic. I mean, thinking back at some other films that do it, American Beauty being the first thing that comes to mind is like, we know he died. Oh. And the whole thing is like a little more tragic that way. Yeah, he was a creep. <laughs> I know you don't like that. Yeah, I know. But um, Yeah, I mean, in the movie itself, that is the answer that they give. Uh, the person who finally answers the question says, uh, if it's all inevitable, they never had hope. They were all just pawns in this horrible, hopeless machine. But personally, I actually kind of don't agree with that. And I'm not completely sure if the movie does. The characters all feel such an immense amount of guilt. Peter feels guilty for getting high. Annie feels guilty for forcing Charlie to go to the party in the first place. Um, Steve feels guilty that he doesn't know how to handle the situation. They're not just suffering from grief, they're suffering from guilt. But if the tragedy is caused by these unseen forces, in this case the cult, Mm -hmm. then neither Annie nor Peter are truly responsible for Charlie's death, maybe. It does alleviate that. I mean, I, I am a determinist myself, and to me, I find that it actually makes life a little bit easier. Mm. Well, isn't it more tragic that they never had a choice and they feel bad about it anyway? Well, they don't know that they never had a choice. Well, yeah, but that's what makes it so tragic is that they ultimately don't have a choice, but they think they have a choice and they feel guilty that they made the wrong choice when it's not actually their fault. Right. So tragically they feel this immense guilt and they blame themselves even though it's not their own fault and they shouldn't blame themselves that the blame is lying elsewhere so it's deterministic and it's cruel in that they don't understand their situation now there is this theory which devin had alluded to earlier that i never thought about until she brought this up that annie is at least on some level aware of what is happening that growing up with her mother she probably knew a lot more than she's letting on, although maybe she just didn't believe it. Mm. So there is that chance that Annie's almost reluctantly going along with the plan to some extent. She ostracized her mother for a while, and that's why they weren't able to get into Peter when he was younger. Mm. But I, I think, what's the exact quote? Annie says, I gave her Charlie. Mm-hmm. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I think you're definitely right because... She's the one constructing the dollhouse. She is definitely aware yeah. that they are pawns, even if it's on a subconscious level. Yeah, or even if it's on a fear level, like what if my mother wasn't crazy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm still in the, the camp of that she is possessed with Payman. Mm-hmm. I, I think at the end, uh, that's, yeah, that's probably what happened. Yeah, which would fit into like her being aware of everything that's going on. Yeah. So I think this is a good point to switch over to our next film, which is equally as devastating, if not more so. And I think it actually is the reason why this fantastic film has such low reviews. Giving us the rundown is Devin Shepard. The lovely Creed family has moved from the big city to rural Maine. Everything seems perfect. Mr. Creed has a new job. The house is beautiful. The neighbor Judd is just a lovely old man. And their two kids, Ellie and Gage, are healthy and happy. But there's one thing about this town that's a little 
I guess deadly is the right word. See, there is one main road that all the truck drivers speed down, killing anything that gets in their way, mostly pets. A tradition of the town is to bury those dead pets in the pet cemetery located behind the Creed home. Very convenient. When Ellie's cat dies, Mr. Creed wants to avoid the conversation with Ellie, so their neighbor Judd takes Mr. Creed beyond the pet cemetery to a hidden Native American burial ground. Anything that's buried here, he says, gets brought back to life. And surely, after Mr. Creed buries the cat, the cat comes back to life. Tragedy then strikes the family when their son Gage is struck and killed by a truck. Distraught, Mr. Creed does what else but bury Gage in the Native American site. Gage comes back, but he's a little more evil. Gage goes on a murder spree, leaving Mr. Creed to then kill his only son. This is Pet Cemetery, directed by Mary Lambert. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to go with, that's a mean road there. Uh, yeah, what the f- what the hell's up with Judd, man? Why does he tell them about the pet cemetery when he knows all the horrible things that have happened in the past with the pet cemetery? It kind of seems like he just sets up the Creed family for disaster. Okay, right. Do you mean the main pet cemetery or do you mean the the ground beyond the pet cemetery? The ground beyond the pet cemetery, obviously. Okay. Yeah. But okay, but does Judd kill the cat? Cuz like the cat is just found on his lawn. I really doubt he killed the cat. It looked like it just got smashed by a truck and went flying onto the yard. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I had never really considered it. I mean, you're right that it's kind of weird that the cat is just on his lawn, which is not Usually what happens when a cat is run over by a truck. Yeah, it kind of looks like that it walked over there, right? Like if it got hit and then purposely yeah. went over to Judd's. There, There is nothing to suggest from my read that Judd would do that. Like he doesn't, he's never malicious in any way. That would be really out of character for him, I think. Well, yeah, see, no. that, that's what I'm wondering, <laughs> though, because he sets up, he sabotages the whole thing. He's the inciting incident. He's the reason why they start bringing de- de- dead shit back from the grave and fucking stuff up. And he knows that it never goes well. Like, he even knows, like, yeah, my dog was fucked up. I'm like, then why'd you bring back their cat? Yeah, no. And to go back to your original question, Rob, like, I don't know. It's very confusing because Judd is, you know, he brings them to the original pet cemetery in order to teach the kids about death, or not in order to, but he does then teach the kids about death. But then when the cat dies, he's like, I know you want to avoid this conversation with Ellie about her dead cat, so let's bring Mm -hmm. it back to life. So it seems like he has really conflicting ideas about what he wants and how he wants to like interact with this family. So Judd has lived in this town for his entire life, yes? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, he brought his dog back when he was a child. So, yeah. He's been there for longer than the highway has been running through the town. I I think he has seen this town go through a lot, a lot of changes over the years. And now he is very old. He's probably in the last years of his life at this point. It doesn't seem like he has any family, any kids, or anything like that. I kind of interpret it as just he—he he wants the culture of the town to live on past him. That if he dies, then the secret will die with him, and he doesn't want that. I think mm. that's a really interesting point, and I think it falls in line with his character and just people uh, of that age group. They kind of want some sort of legacy of theirs to live on, even if it's just through knowledge. Yeah, 
But I also think the more horror story angle is that the evil of the cemetery is infectious. And mm. it's kind of the ancient Indian burial grounds, evil spirits or whatever. Perhaps there are even vengeful spirits who are angry about the industrialization by Westerners, the overtaking of their land. And this is kind of their way of getting back at them. Mm. Or perhaps it's an even older evil spirit that the natives were wary of, that even they didn't want to touch this thing. I think either is kind of in the sphere of possibility. Yeah, because this thing is like pure evil. When Gage comes back, he immediately kills Judd and then goes after his yeah. mom. It's it's like immediate. He also wears a dress. That's It's a burial gown. Yeah, but, oh. but he's a boy. Why does he wear yeah, a burial gown? It's a thing. I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> well, I think it's a scary horror movie trope, kind of, that just boys dress as girls when they kill people. It is. That is a trope. It's a somewhat offensive trope, but it is a trope. I, I got to push back against that because there is a lot of evidence of American serial killers wearing women's clothing when they do it, especially the ones in the early 70s. Yeah. Oh, like so you think that's where, where it's stemming from? You have Ed Gein. Yeah, it, it kind of has his historical backing. Ed Gein didn't really do that. That was a myth. He definitely, I think he had women's skin belts and shit. But the other like more offensive thing that this movie specifically does is cast a male as Rachel's sister. Yeah. Mm. And mm. Mary Lambert was like, oh, I just didn't think she's supposed to be 13. She's like, I didn't think 13 year old <laughs> girls could play scarier enough. And I'm like, didn't The Exorcist come out before this movie? It wasn't that like 10 years ago. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Mm. I, I'm okay with that because I got to tell you, Zelda scared the fuck out of me when I first saw this movie. I couldn't sleep for like a week. Yeah, scary, but like I you could find someone you could find a woman to play that scary. Come on. I don't think anyone could have scared me that much in that role. That scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. So <laughs> I think it's perfect. Sorry. I'm I'm okay with mixing gendered uh braces. It's like when Tilda Swinton played the dude in that movie. Okay, but not when the purpose is because it's supposed to be scarier. Like, I think that's the issue here is that she was like, it's scarier if a guy plays a woman because then it like it, it's all about your perception of gender then in that sense. Well, it, it does make mm. it, there is kind of like a creepy factor of like, there's something not right here because there's just a lot of things that don't add up. Right. Like like Zelda's entire condition. What, what does she have exactly? Um, spinal polio? meningitis. Yeah, oh. spinal meningitis, except she doesn't have spinal meningitis. It's not what spinal meningitis is. It's a made up disease that they called spinal meningitis. It's, mm. I don't think it's made up. I think he it just has like, similarities. He, but yeah, yeah, it's I, just I, not well yeah, researched. He just didn't do his research. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. In reality, it would have killed her a lot faster and also would have been really contagious. So right. it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I thought she had like tetanus or polio or something, but uh, just just based on the symptoms. Um, I mean, to me, again, I don't. I don't need any of my horror movies to be medically accurate. I don't care. Yeah, as long they as they're explicitly scary. call it spinal meningitis. Yeah, but Zelda really scared the shit out of me when I was a little kid. Really So did. I agree with both of you to some extent because Zelda is absolutely the scariest part of the movie and mm -hmm. she's fucking fantastic. But I also agree with you, Devin, that when horror movies do this, it does seem to be suggesting that we should be afraid of transgender people. And it does instill yes. that into our subconscious. Yes. So you are right. It is absolutely an offensive trope as well. 
Oh. That's that's exactly it. You think she looks like she could be a trans person and that's scary. Yes. No, it instills the idea that a man dressed as a woman is scary. Or a man presenting mm. as a woman, I should say, is is I, that's not even like the right. I know I'm not saying the right thing here, but you you get what I'm saying. No, I, I I do get what you're saying, and I think it falls in line with the Gage Creed thing because he dresses in a dress at the end, and you're like, wow, that's scary, <laughs> you know. But then we just it's establish just that he's not dressing in a dress, and that it's not that's not anything to do uh, with that at all. I think Devin and I disagree on that point, but it's still uh, a I'm dress. Sure. I don't disagree that it's not a dress. Okay, it's still a dress. Yeah, mm. gown is a dress. It's the same thing. Yeah. I I, I did have a point about the horror movies needing to be medically accurate. Say it. Say it, Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, I think it's interesting that you said that you don't care or you don't mind if your horror films aren't medically accurate because, like, normally I would have agreed with you. And then when David was like, this isn't spinal meningitis, here's what spinal meningitis is. And I did some initial research and saw that so many people had a bad reaction to this film, just like terrified of spinal meningitis and then like actually watched people go through it. And they were like offended that the movie portrayed it this way because Mm. it gave this perception of like fear and horror about this disease that isn't as horrible as it is portrayed in the film. The people Mm. like suffering it don't look like Zelda. Yeah, but isn't it kind of (laughs) worse because it's more infectious than it is in the film? So isn't it in reality more deadly and more infectious? It is curable if you catch it early on. Um, It moves very quickly, but if you catch it early on, then it's curable. I think there's also a vaccine for it, maybe. And we should say it moves very quickly as in it's likely to move very quickly. It's not all the time. Yeah. You can die within the first 24 hours to 10 days later. I, I think it's 24 hours after the symptoms appear that... Um, you are you can. Yeah. Jesus Christ, it's worse than the movie. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, but, you don't, <laughs> but people who suffer it don't look like this. You know, they don't... And, and I think a lot of people were like, yeah, the way that Stephen King describes it in the book, too. Like, that's not... That's not what it's like. And so every time someone says, I have spinal meningitis or I had it, everyone like imagines fucking Zelda. Like, could you imagine people thinking that you're Zelda? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I I get that. But there's also, you know, like if you have like herpes, people like imagine the worst possible case of it. When in reality, a lot of it, the symptoms are super mild. Yeah, I'm going to blame that on our sexual education there. Yeah, our misinterpretation of herpes. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. I, I assume some people might be offended by it, but again, I I think uh, movies that set out with a purpose, that purpose trumps pretty much everything else they're doing. And Pet Cemetery is good because it's scary. The way I will partially defend the Zelda stuff is that it's not told in a straightforward way. It's not an omniscient narrative in those scenes it is specifically rachel recalling her memories and i just interpreted that she has exaggerated the frightening aspects of it because it was scary Mm. for her right and she was a child reasonable yeah 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 i i understand her being afraid and i i it's legitimate that she was afraid of it because she didn't understand it and was not given proper guidance I really appreciate how the film uh, comments on her, the neglectful nature of her parents. Like that is a point yeah. of contention mm-hmm. within the marriage is like your parents suck. 
<laughs> it's kind of typical of a Stephen King narrative. It is very well thought out. All the characters are really well developed and the world is very cohesive. And I think that's really to the strength of this movie. I also like how nothing they do is like easy. It doesn't feel like anything's like kind of coincidental mm. to me at least. And that actually would be one of my charges against uh, Hereditary. The one thing I don't like is that she very easily is like, who's this woman? Oh, it's in a photo album in my desk. Like had she looked through those beforehand, the setup wouldn't have worked. And it was very easy for her. Yeah, I, I agree that the world here is really robust without being too expository. And that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. I, I think to that credit, you know, this is Stephen King actually did write the screenplay. Is this the only screenplay that he wrote based off of his own story? No, he's written a lot of screenplays based okay. on his own stories. Okay. Yeah. I did not know that. But yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I do like all the character decisions, like you were saying, especially Rachel and Zelda, as I think that that reveal was really beautiful because it shows what David was saying was this thing that she feared so much. And it is the central fear, I feel, of this film that she doesn't want to talk to her kids about death. She gets so angry when her husband, Lewis brings up death around the child. She's like, you have to promise that the cat's not going to die. And she they like get in this weird little fight. She doesn't want her children to know about death at all. Yeah, I like the hyperprotective uh, nature of her character. Is she, though? Well, not wanting the kids to know about <laughs> well, death. That's hyperprotective for sure. You should explain that. Well, I think it's based on her fear. I think she's scared that the kids are going to go down the same path that she went down, right? Yeah. She obviously is still traumatized from this. Which yeah. I like that they have that explanation for it. I, I think without that, her character would be a little hard to sympathize with, but that really yeah. helps a lot. Yeah, I didn't like her up until that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, one of the characters I have the biggest problem with is Lewis, the main character. And I don't think it's just because I think a lot of it is maybe his direction or his acting. I think he's supposed to be more arrogant than he is because I, I really get this mm. vibe from the script mm. that he's supposed to kind of be this arrogant know-it-all type. Well, I mean, not not completely like an asshole or anything, because I think he's still a nice guy, even though he makes some questionable decisions in the film. But his arrogance doesn't come off in his acting. It comes off in his decisions. I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, I don't think any of the performances in the movie are all that good, except surprisingly for Gage, the two-year-old kid. Oh, my God, mm-hmm. incredible. Um, but yeah, I agree that the acting is lacking. There there seems to be this push, though, with the arrogance, like you were saying, this push against like city folk. This movie feels mm-hmm. like it kind of mm-hmm. is just does not like the way that I'm going to say city folk because I just love that phrase. The city folk are acting and kind of makes them feel a little haughty. Well, that's a good I, way I of like describing it. Because I think there's three levels of it. Because if we consider the Indian burial ground aspect, there's the level of like, look at these invaders coming and messing up our country from the West. But then you look at the town folk who are like, look at these city invaders coming in and messing with our uh, little town. Although I don't really see the back and forth between the town folk and the city folk nearly as much. So there is also a sense of arrogance just and even moving here onto this highway. I mean... Mm-hmm. They're literally talking about like, oh, we have to make sure our cat doesn't wander onto the highway. So it's not like they haven't considered the danger of this location. It is extremely dangerous to live here. Mm-hmm. But that also ties into this whole idea of the city invading the rural areas that like, why? Why is this 
fucking highway with these massive trucks speeding through this tiny town with children. Like, there's mm-hmm. no signs. There's no red light anywhere. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Literally, what the yeah, fuck? Why is it like this? I know. Imagine, like, they just put a speed bump in and then just the movie doesn't happen. <laughs> they should have a How It Should Have Ended video for that. Just, hey, <laughs> Uh, I have a great idea. Why don't you just put a speed bump? <laughs> that would be Rachel's character. She would come in from the city, be like, I don't want to teach my kids about death and like be a total Karen and like throw her arms up against the local government. And be like, we're putting in a goddamn stoplight here. Our children are going to die. Towns change. And I think a lot of this is about, uh, you know, this ancient evil industrialization and et cetera, et cetera. I yeah, definitely like I the agree. industrialization read. And it, it's really interesting to me too that I love the read of Judd wanting to pass on this tale about the Native American burial ground. Um, but it's also interesting that they kind of, I don't want to say maybe steal, but they like take, you know, they take that tradition. It's because Judd is not Native American. We don't see mm-hmm. any Native Americans in this movie. So it's interesting to see, yeah, basically white people taking on this tradition that they've also pushed out before. How did Judd find the burial ground? It kind, You get the idea that it was passed on through generations, that it's like kind of a town secret. Yeah. That's, that's the vibe I've gotten, that this thing goes way back. Yeah, but while we're talking about like some slightly problematic tropes in the movie, the Native American burial ground is definitely one of them. Why? Why is that a problem? Because it tells you that the Native American religion is something other and strange and scary. Not necessarily. Well, I mean, it depends on what angle you're viewing it from. If you're viewing it from like the industrialization one, then I don't think it's necessarily problematic. It's also not explicitly explained that this is part of the Native American religion. It could be something Native Americans worry about. And I think it's more interesting that we're not giving like a lame framing angle from a Native American character. That does help, but I think the question of like what is this evil is really how it ties into this being a, a bad trope because what this evil is perceived as ancient Native American spirit because mm-hmm. it's coming from the burial ground. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't find these tropes using villains, for lack of a better term, any kind of ancient evils from different societies as bad, for instance, like the movie The Ritual, I mean, which uses a, a Norse deity as a villain. It's like really interesting. That's something we don't see very often. Or like antlers that uses our skinwalker. What the fuck are they called? Wendigo. A Wendigo. Yeah, those kind of things. Can we talk about Pascal? We have yes. to talk about Pascal. Yes, please. Yes. What was your guys' reading on Pascal's character and his importance to the story and the spiritual realm? Mm. So I, I like the way Pascal's uh, presented because this idea of like ghosts in dreams only is a very, very old one. It dates back to like the Odyssey with uh, Ulysses because he sees ghosts in his own dreams in, in that. So this idea mm. of that, that's kind of the space where the living and the dying, the veil is thinnest. And that's where you can have this kind of communication. So I like how Pascal is kind of this guardian angel force trying to fight against determinism. Mm. which is a type of character we don't have at all in Hereditary. Yeah, this is a different kind of determinism. This isn't someone is manipulating the actions. This is everything is predetermined. This is going to happen. There are supernatural forces at play. We have the little girl, Ellie, uh, not to be confused with Ellen, the grandmother in Hereditary, or should they be? That's a fan theory. Yeah, that's a fan theory. Ellie from Pet Cemetery grows up and becomes the grandmother in Hereditary. Amazing. Love it. Love it. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's why the movie titles rhyme. That's amazing. That's so great. <laughs> I love that. The ages totally work out. That, that totally makes sense. <laughs> totally. The prequel to Hereditary is the true sequel to Pet Cemetery. Like, it's always wrong. Yeah. But yeah, what I was saying, Ellie has like The Shining or something that she just gets these visions of what is happening across the country or sometimes mm-hmm. even in the future. She like sees her father bringing Gage back to life before it happens. Mm-hmm. I, I don't agree because I think I think it is. Pascal, I don't think that she has a shining because it's Pascal telling her what's going to happen. And so mm. it's more of Pascal having the shining and the ability to talk to her through his death, which is interesting that he does know what's going to happen after he dies. And it's, his rules are kind of interesting because he can come to you in dreams. He speaks and appears to Lewis Creed, um, the mm-hmm. dad. And it seems like Rachel can kind of maybe hear him and Ellie sees him in her dreams. Yeah, they all interact with him to some degree. Yeah, there's one point, though, where he's like, I can't go any further. And and, and it does imply, though, that there is something that is that there are rules that he says he can't go further. So there is something that's telling him what's happening. Mm. Yeah, there there is kind of this unexplained spiritual aspect to it that I, I really enjoy. And um, it's kind of an area that Stephen King was interested in a lot of his work, and particularly mm. the idea of determinism, which we talked about in The Dead Zone. And yep. that here it's more tragic because as much as Pascal attempts, there's nothing he can do. Because like Hereditary, they're mm-hmm. kind of pawns, except they're pawns to fate in both cases. Now, if you were to consider that Paimon supposedly can see past and future, then you could say that his coming is also a force of fate. Uh, I disagree because the, the existence of Pascal actually gives the characters agency that they are now actively rejecting his warnings Mm. so regardless of whether or not there was a free will aspect to it they they are more in control even if it's fatalistic that feels like they're more in control than they were in hereditary right but ultimately it ends up being futile so it kind of seems like pascal's actions are yes but yeah it kind of feels like pascal knows that this will probably fail but he tries anyway it's like him maintaining his humanity in death. You you didn't touch on this in the summary, but at the end, uh, Gage kills Rachel, and then Lewis brings Rachel to the pet cemetery and and buries her in the burial ground as well. Uh, and Pascal shows up, and he's like, "Dude, come on, we just went through this." <laughs> <laughs> and Lewis yeah. is just like I, I, he's acting like Herbert West from Reanimator. He's like. Oh, well, last time I waited too long. Now I'm going to do it sooner. So it'll work this time. It's like, dude. <laughs> and it's implied Rachel kills Lewis. And that, yeah. what's her name? Ellie? Yeah. Wakes up screaming because her parents, her whole family's killed. What a tragic movie. It is a really sad movie. And poor Ellie, she's already suffered so much grief. And and we see that with her little brother. And then we, we aren't going to see it with her parents. But she's going to fucking suffer. If we're going to start talking about grief here, I think that this is the main theme for both of these movies. Yeah, agreed. So I, I think we can start by going through the the way that people typically frame grief is the you guys are familiar, I assume, with the five stages of grief. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just say them again for our listeners, though. So this originated in the 1969 book on death and dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. It's also called the Kubler-Ross model. And basically it says that When someone is processing a terminal illness diagnosis, yeah, that's right, not the death of a loved one, 
they go through five stages, which are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, however, this was actually based entirely on anecdotal evidence. And like I just said, it's not even actually about processing grief. It's about processing the diagnosis of a terminal illness, which still it's kind of grease, but not the death of a loved one. Um, more scientific studies done in later decades have consistently found there's actually no basis for this way that we typically treat the proper way of grieving that even as little as 11% of people actually follow this method. Uh, so the stigma can actually kind of do more harm by shaming the other 89% who are already in real pain. Even Cooper Ross herself lamented the way her writing took over pop culture. That was never her intention to make people feel like this was the only way. And I think both of these movies do a good job at breaking that down and showing that there are many, many ways to grieve. How do you guys feel? Yeah, I mean, there definitely are many ways to grieve. And I agree, we we see a lot of it throughout these movies. I do agree that, you know, the stages, that's the wrong way to look at grief or mm. those exact stages. I, I saw them as kind of like categories for emotions. You know how like yeah. they say we have, you know, five emotions and any other emotion mm -hmm. fits into the subcategory of those, which is questionable, but yeah. also like when you really break it down, yeah, that works. And that's kind of like how I read those five things, I, not stages. We definitely see them in different extents to the movies, uh, throughout the movies. Peter driving home after Charlie's death uh, is just complete denial. Um, the entire plot of Pet Cemetery is basically bargaining. Oh, weird. I saw that as denial. I saw Lewis's whole thing as denial that Gage was ever dead. Because he, 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 he takes Gage out of the grave and talks to him and holds him like he's alive. Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess it's both. Yeah, I guess it, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because he bargains yeah, well, for his. Yeah, he denies life. that he's dead, and at the end, when his wife dies, he's in denial that it's too late. Right. Yeah, definitely. It kind of goes like denial bargaining back to denial. Yeah. I think, for instance, yeah, like Steve's character in Hereditary seems to be the closest to acceptance of anybody. Yeah, I th I agree with that. Yeah. We did discuss that he likely suffers from depression, but I think that in terms of Moving on from his daughter's death, he is the closest there. He is, wants to focus on helping his son instead. I would argue Joan is the most accepting of death and grief. Oh, okay, come on. <laughs> yeah, 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 but, but, but we, don't, we don't know if she's lying or not about her. She's totally her. lying. <laughs> she's 100% no. lying. Oh my God, I don't know no. if they're dying, if they're actually dead or not, her son and grandson. I would think it's likely she just lied about it. Oh, actually. Completely lying. Yeah. You know what? I always thought it was true. And then now I remember when they're in the parking lot in the grocery store, she has the chalkboards in the trunk of her yep. car. Yeah. Uh, so it was very clearly not her grandchild's chalkboard. Oh, right. She just bought the chalkboard there. Yeah. That's funny. I never noticed that. That's great. That's a great yep. find. I do think that there are also characters in these movies who don't fit into any of the five stages. That specifically Annie's grief of her mother's passing and Rachel's grief of her sister's passing, neither of those fit the model at all because they're both kind of not sad or even happy about it. And that is something that is very, very much left out of the model completely. Yeah, Rachel running out and screaming, uh, Zelda's dead, Zelda's dead, and she's happy about it. But then she feels guilty about it after the fact is uh, really interesting. 
It's also mm-hmm. interesting that later on in her life that makes it so she doesn't want to expose her children to death at all because her experience with death is just so disturbing and traumatic. Yeah. And she does keep saying, like, is Zelda dead yet? Is Zelda dead yet? Yeah. Which it, but it almost feeds into this idea that she's kind of accepted the death before it ever happens. Yes. I think that is very much true. It was a terminal illness. It's the same case in Ellen in Hereditary's death, uh, Mm -hmm. the grandmother's death, that she was also suffering from dementia and was clearly sick for a long time. But it was also just a complicated relationship with her daughter. And I love this moment when they get home and Annie just turns to Steve and she's like, should I be sadder? Right. There's a sense of relief there, which I think is totally, I mean, obviously it's acceptable, where you watch someone who is, I mean, I think we can say suffering. They're both dying. So there is a sense of like the relief of like being at peace or, you know, like not having to suffer anymore. Yes. Which is totally acceptable. And and so many people go through, I think a lot of people start the grieving process at the diagnosis, you know? The grieving process doesn't start when the person dies. We're, we're going through it as we live. I mean, this model was meant to talk about terminal illness diagnoses, not the loss of a loved one. So that very much fits with that. Yeah. Basically, what I'm getting at is that there, there is no incorrect way to grieve. Right. Yes, of course. Unless you try to raise the dead. That's bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes dead is better. (laughs) Sorry, David. You can't say that because people have really bad ways of coping with grief that are damaging to themselves and others. So, yeah, there might not be a correct way to grieve, but there are definitely bad ways to do it. Yes, that's completely fair. There are unhealthy ways of failing to cope, but there is not one specific correct way. I I think Steve is the one who says, like, you should just feel whatever you're feeling, and that's fine. And he is right. Mm. Yeah. One of my favorite things about Pet Cemetery, and Rob, you touched on this before, is the way that Lewis explains grief to Ellie and the way that they talk about it, and the way Mm. that he says that you're allowed to create your own belief system about what happens after someone dies and how you want to grieve, essentially, which we see a lot. A lot of religions are born out of the fear of death and out of grieving. Specifically, spiritualism, which is an actual religion, it comes from grief and it it became really popular after the Civil War when, you know, I think that was like, was that the most deadly American war? So many people died. Yeah, by far. And a lot of America took up this spiritualist belief system that, Life continues on after you die. Um, and that's the basis of it. it. It is a Christian religion, not in fucking hereditary, which pisses me off so much. They make it seem like a demonic cult. Like that's not that's not what the religion is. Wait, wait, but do they specifically call it, what, what is what is this spiritualism? They call it spiritualism. Yeah, yeah, but isn't that her lying to get her? wrapped up into it isn't spiritualism kind of an umbrella term like there could be a religion called that but you could say my spiritualism and yeah be referencing buddhism hinduism islam like all of those are spiritual you can but what hereditary does is um when annie's going through ellen's things there is a book called spiritualism and it acts like that's a fucking religion. And the whole re- the whole thing about the religion of spiritualism 
does revolve around um, seances. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are performing seances. Yeah. It touches exactly on the religion. Well, aren't aren't Satanists technically Christian? But the spiritualists aren't Satanists. They don't worship demons. Yeah, I'm just defending the film here. I, I think it's okay to kind of frame this offshoot religion in terms of kind of this satanic cult because it's not I don't think it's framing the entire religion in that way because watching the film I didn't even realize they were referencing this religion I didn't realize they were referencing a religion either and I think you have a very different experience with this Devin so can you just elaborate on it a bit more um just that it is an actual religion and they seem to be demonizing it in the film it is it is a religion that's the only thing in in like addition is that they believe in like a spiritual afterlife and you're able to like talk to these spirits. It's basically the whole idea of this this new wave of of seances that came about in the mid to late 1800s and continues on to this day. But it's not like in hereditary they have the group members like say we reject the trinity and they're like literally worshiping this demon payment that Aleister Crowley like fucking worshiped. Like it's a different idea of what they have. I was just angry at the fact that they used the word spiritualist and spiritualism at all as a religion it's portrayed as. Mm. Don't you think that's her yeah. lying though? Like trying to present it this way to kind of yeah. comfort her? That's an interesting I take. I didn't take it as like the whole seance was fake, but maybe you are right that the whole seance is fake. Well, I don't think the seance is fake. The seance isn't fake it's just not what it's presented as she is told joan tells annie that this will summon her daughter charlie but it's actually summoning payment she doesn't tell her what the text means she says oh i don't know what it means but it works and literally payment is in the text like it's just doing a completely different thing than annie thinks it's doing doesn't it bring back charlie though because charlie is technically payment but also charlie at the end does come back yeah i think both those Mm. things are true I don't I don't think so, because Charlie is not payment. Charlie had payment in her, but she is not payment. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's explicitly clear either way. But it is interesting that at the end, when the spirit goes into Peter, they call him Charlie to begin with. So like, whatever transferred from one to the other still had Charlie. So whether that's just payments confusion, I think, within the realm of resurrecting themselves in the beginning, I think that might be part of it. So I have a kind of uh, weird theory that never occurred to me until this rewatch. I, I am not convinced that the ritual worked because Peter, when he is allegedly possessed, never speaks. He never says anything. He kind of looks the same as he did after Charlie's death when he was in shock. And I think there is a potential read of this where that's actually still Peter and everyone just assumes the ritual worked. Interesting. Doesn't he go... Though? Yeah, he does. Does he? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he definitely starts clicking. And we also see the spirit go into him. We never receive confirmation that the ritual actually worked, that finished. Sure. Sure. I'll I'll give that to you, but I mean like it makes it makes <laughs> the film so much weaker. <laughs> yeah, I think when he clicks, that's our confirmation. But it does tie in a bit because a lot of the possession and whatnot also ties into the metaphors for grief that I'm reading Peter's response this way because his potentially being possessed by payment is in part a metaphor for him just completely shutting out the world after seeing his entire family getting slaughtered. Mm. Annie's possession after seeing Gabriel burn in front of her is similarly 
plays as a reaction where she's just had enough and she's finally just shutting down. Her possessed death kind of plays like suicide. Yeah. So a little bit tangential, but uh, I think Pet Cemetery has an interesting point on this as well. We were talking about how Lewis tells Ellie about how he believes that after someone dies, we do go on. Uh, he doesn't say heaven or anything like that explicitly, just that there is some afterlife he believes that our soul continues onward. But then he brings Gage back. So either he doesn't really believe what he told Ellie, whether he realized it or not, or his act of bringing Gage back is completely self-motivated. It's not for Gage's benefit, it's for his own. I think it's the second one because I think it, it doesn't go against his belief. His belief is that the spirits do continue, right? And in order mm -hmm. to bring Gage back, he would have to believe that the spirit would come back into Gage. So mm. I don't think that goes against mm. his belief there. But I, I do agree that it is entirely self-motivated that he's trying to end his his grief and he thinks this is the solution. He's in denial. I mean, it, that's really, yeah. yeah. It's it's yeah. interesting because then all the resurrections in Pet Cemetery, none of them are about helping the people who died they are all about helping the bereaved right yeah definitely and i think they even say that when they bring the cat back that it's like she's too young to learn about death or whatever but yeah it doesn't seem like he, they're bringing the correct soul back it seems like they're right. being possessed by evil whatever's taking yeah, them over definitely. or the more cynical one would be that wherever their soul went is turn them evil uh, that's what happens in the remake. Yeah, but I think Pascal kind of <laughs> rebuts that point. Yeah, that's actually a good point because I think what we're missing from the belief system of the characters is what they think the spirit's going through. Mm. Lewis doesn't know where Gage was, if he was in a better place or a more worse place. But I think what you said, Rob, was mm -hmm. really interesting is that we get maybe a clear sense that there is an okay place, at least, <laughs> that, that Pascal is part of. <laughs> a medium place. A medium place. He's <laughs> a medium place. Well, wherever. I mean, we, we don't know where Pascal went. He could have gone to someplace awesome, but he definitely has come back for this purpose to try. I, I don't get the sense that he's stuck in purgatory. I, I get the sense that he's there by his own volition. I get that sense as well. Yeah. Okay, so I think it's a good point now to go to my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review session, where we review each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Starting us off this week with Hereditary is David B. Jacobs. Dope. Um, this movie's fantastic. I, I feel like when I'm not watching a movie, I tend to uh, rate it lower because I just get uh, so bored of everyone talking about it all the time. It's a very overexposed movie. But watching it again, I'm just completely mesmerized absolutely into it don't give a shit what anyone says movie is fantastic i love that the conspiracy is never fully laid out there are so many horror movies that just completely fall apart when they're explained so it's really cool that this one ends like pretty much right before that part like the final monologue is a little bit much but whatever I I love all of the the realistic crying that uh both Tony Collette and Alex Wolf are like ugly when they cry and they sound like real people and they act like real people and it's just such a fantastic meditation on all the different ways that people grieve. Uh I'm giving this three and a half bones. Wow. Fuck. Okay. Um I'll go next. I have such a complicated relationship with this movie. I really, really hated it when I first saw it. I think upon the second viewing, it's been some years talking about it with you guys, doing a lot of research. I've completely like come around 
a little bit more. I'm going to have to like reevaluate it again after our, our talks about the spiritualist aspect because I still, I was just so angry how they portrayed it in the film. But maybe I do agree with you guys a little bit more that maybe they're just using it as a, that they're not actually spiritualist, which would change my opinion. The filmmaking is okay. I remember first thinking it was very, very, very like copycat. And now I see it as a little more unique. Definitely, The director does a really good job of, of showing the themes through the craftsmanship, which I really respect. Um, I think there are a lot of pitfalls. It being a directorial debut, there always are. The acting is just so good. It's just, it's really, really good. Tony Collette's fucking incredible. Alex Wolf is fucking incredible. <sighs> I will give it two and a half bones because that's where I was before. That might raise up a little bit more, I think, as as we keep reexamining. Rob, what about you? Uh, I'm more with David on this one. I think this movie's really, really good. I just, uh, I, I feel like uh, the ending is probably the best part. On a rewatch, so much of it just lies on the performances, which are great, and the directing, which is very like thick in atmosphere. It's unsettling. I don't know how scary it is. And the whole like possession cult thing, I, I feel like isn't the most interesting plot. It's it's all in the execution. I am really back and forth between three and three and a half bones. Uh, I think I'm going to go three and a half. I really like this movie a lot. I think it's a very good horror film. Like very, very good. Uh, David, what do you think of the original Pet Cemetery? So I want to do this by comparing the two death scenes of Charlie's death and Gage's death. So in Charlie's death, you have this, like, the, the music all cuts off. After she dies, there's just this long pause, and we just hold on Peter in shock for, like, 30 seconds or something. In Gage's death, the music swells up, the camera goes all crazy dramatic, and Dad literally just shouts, no, like he's Luke Skywalker. And it's, like, it's so campy, and I'm sorry, I do not feel that impact at all. I do not care that Gage died. I think mostly because of the way the scene is shot. It just loses all its impact. It's really weird that Gage is the best actor in the movie. I mean, we know that Miko Hughes is great because we saw him in New Nightmare, which we covered back in October. I don't love this movie. This is going to be weird, but I actually might prefer the remake, if that's allowed. That one has more of an exploration of the experience of being dead. And it has like all the existential dread that goes along with that. It's not they just become back possessed. It's they come back and they're like, there is absolutely nothing beyond the grave. And it's horrifying and I don't want to go back there. And I just think that that's more interesting. <laughs> I still like this movie. It The scares are really effective. The, the effects are really good. And the idea is really cool. It's kind of just an updated version of... Is that short story of the monkey's paw? The one where they have three wishes and one of them is to bring the kid back from the dead and then the the other parent is like no don't do that it's gonna come back different or something like that it, it's a great short story but yeah i'll get i'll give it two bones wow that's harsh uh devin how what do you think of the uh original pet cemetery for pet cemetery i agree it like there's so many great things about it but i think for me all the good things about it really come down to the story and the characters and that all comes from Stephen King. And I wish I read the book, but I didn't. But I'm, I'm sure it all comes from the source material. He does do a really great job with the screenplay, which is surprising. I always am surprised when authors of books that are several, you know, hundred pages can whittle it down to a two-hour screenplay. That's talent right there. The acting is 
cheesy and the structure's a little off. Also a problem I have with Hereditary is the structure. And it is a little TV movie. I love Fred Gwine so much, or however you say his name, like so, 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 so much. I love Judd. I love what he brings to that character and how he he takes it upon it. The death scenes are cool. I do feel a lot, and the story is really cool. I'm gonna, I'm gonna also say two and a half bones for for Pet Cemetery. Wow, you guys are nuts. Uh, I mean, but I guess you agree with a lot of the like critical review at the time. I think I talked to people um, in the past, and they said they didn't like the movie because they kill a baby in it. And I'm like, I I understand that. That's like traumatic. I do agree the direction and the acting are not the best, but maybe I'm more forgiving of those aspects of films because I love a lot of horror films that don't have great acting. So I only think it adds to the experience. It doesn't necessarily take away from the experience, but I also have a lot of nostalgia because Zelda literally kept me up at night for like weeks when I was a kid, but I'm rewatching it because I've seen it like four or five times. But Cemetery is great. It's scary. It's got a fantastic storyline. It's really cool. It has all the elements of like a good horror story. Uh, And and in that regard, I almost think it's better than Hereditary because I feel like Hereditary is kind of lacking in like the overall story elements, but it's a really fun, creepy watch. I I guess I'll give it the same score. I'm going to give it three and a half bones. I I think it's like one of the classic iconic horror films for a reason. Wow. Uh, Well, anyway, that wraps it up for this week. I hope you guys, you can stand up now. You don't have to prostrate naked anymore before the holiness of the Cadaver Dogs podcast. Hopefully, Payma has not possessed you. And hopefully, if he has, you are sitting upon your mountain of riches as he has bestowed upon you. Goodbye. The soil of a man's heart is stonier.